everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Recorded live. Good morning. Welcome to Aldo's Targeted Individual Community Call. It's Wednesday, November 11th, 2015. So I want to start off with um, talking about since, well, last Friday, um, in order to log into my timekeeper. And your timekeeper is important because that has to do with your the labor and the work that you do. So I was locked out of being able to, to get into my timekeeper. With this particular company, they have these fail-safes. So if the password doesn't work or they need you to change your password, you have one of three options that you set up so that you can get a code in order to get into the timekeeper. So the first one was to my cell phone, a text message code that used to work, and it stopped working. I tried to set up, uh, and then my email, that worked later. So it was like there was a delay going on in it. But they changed it so that it would go to my work email address in order to give me the code so I could get in. That failed. Then they tried to change it to uh, a voice where it would call my office, you know, my my um desk phone and then, you know, give me a voice code so that I could put it into the um, uh, system as the secondary uh, login. So they have the security. The only problem is it failed at three levels. So then they started working on and changing things around and everything and it still wouldn't take. So that was Monday. It still didn't work. Then Tuesday, it still wasn't working. So, you know, I, I'm working on this, and they're like, well, you know, go use it, the, because they have where you can get a card and you can scan it in that way. And that's not the point. The point is you have a system that is an option for all the employees or the desk employees, the ones that work at their desk, so they can log in from their desk and put their time in. Yes, I know there's this option, but you need to fix the option that's not working instead of acting as if it's not important. Somebody's time is important. The Department of Labor knows that. That's why we have to log in and out instead of writing our time in and out, you know, for your eight hours a day because they want to see. So I understood that they were busy because there was payroll and everything, so that's fine. Then finally I said, you know what, why don't you give me the telephone number because this deals with my time and my ability to log in. So I go in, well, when I went in yesterday, a person who's doing the timekeeping for the person who left, because we're having people leave, um, made, made the reference to the law. Well, if the company, the law says if the company gives you another option, then you're required. No, I'm not, no. Here's the thing. The company allows two different ways to log in, uh, to, to clock in and out. You're saying, well, we can't fix this, so just go do it that way. No, that's not the point. You're taking an option away that other people have an option for. When you start citing the law, that's a threat. You just made a direct threat to an employee. 
by stating the law. So that says it all off. Don't threaten me with the law about labor issues when the company allows for this, these two ways to, to clock in. I choose to do it this way. All three fail-saves have failed. That's a system problem, whether it's on the company's end or the payroll company's end. The point is the system failed and it needs to be fixed. Well, that wasn't an important. Just go clock in using a scan card. Yeah, that's possible, but I don't choose to do it that way. Don't threaten me with the law. Then we have a problem. Then you're going to set in motion a chain of events where you shouldn't have gone down that road. That's a direct threat. Fix the problem. Call the technicians. Find out where the issue is. Don't look at it like, well, it's, it's no big deal. Somebody's time is a big deal. Allowing them to do what other people can do is a big deal. Isolating one computer to say, you can't do it like that, go do it the other way, is an act of discriminatory practices. Never cite the law with a targeted individual. We've already been down roads that you have never been down. So finally I got on the phone, and then on the other end, I started getting this, well, I don't have time to deal with you, and blah, blah, blah. Wait a second. You're the payroll company. You're ha There's an issue with my ability to log in. Yeah, you have three fail-saves to give me a code so I can get into the system, and it's still not working. Don't get hostile with me. I'm asking to fix the problem. So then she calls me back, this person in the payroll, from the, the payroll company, and then she starts getting, you know, she can't figure it out. So I said, well, when you talk to the technician, let them know, again, that you have three, you have three fail-saves for security, and they all failed. The email wouldn't come into my com the company email address. The voice would not call the, my desk phone, and the text message would not go to my cell phone. Well, you're repeating yourself. Then that's when I said, okay, wait a second over here. You're the one who called me back. You can't figure it out. Don't get mad at me. Because I'll come back with a response. So by the end of the day, they sort of got it fixed. And what's really interesting is that I'm the only person who has to log in through Firefox because for some reason, Explorer will not work. Well, if the company-wide uses Explorer, then why is it that my desktop has to go off of another um, um, uh, browser, web browser, because it won't work on the company-wide Explorer? So it's fine. I finally got in. 
But look at three days. And ultimately, I had to step in for myself to ensure that I was allowed to log in and out to clock my hours, which I have a right to do. I had the right to choose which option I want to log in with. So then the payroll person comes up to me later and says, well, that's karma. You mean because someone deliberately decided that fail-safe, like everybody else has the uh, uses to log in, is going to fail only on my computer? Why? If everybody else's computer who logs in through their desk wasn't having a problem, I didn't do anything. Karma is not when humans deliberately interfere, obstruct, tamper with. That's a decision on somebody else's part attempting to give the appearance that is karma. So as a target, you have to understand there are people who are deliberately doing things because they want to give the false impression that that's what karma or payback or whatever is and that you brought it on yourself. You don't bring things on yourself when a a secondary party is interfering with your process. That's man-made. That's retaliation. That's an act of violence. So that's what I've been dealing with. But that's what happens in your workplace. So as a target or a new target, be aware of it. There's a lot of underhanded things, subtle things that transpire. And just be aware that there are people who feel the need to directly interfere with somebody else's life. That's hostile. That's violence. If you go to work and you want to do your job, as most targets did and do, they're not messing with anyone. But for some reason, and I'm sure there's plenty of psychopathologies that can be attributed to your perpetrator community, they feel the need to interfere obstruct, sabotage. That's on them. But they try to rationalize what they do. It's kind of like they dish out stuff and when a target decides that they're going to stand up, they don't like it, so they retaliate. Then don't dish it out if you can't take it. That's my bottom line. And here's another thing. A lot of your delusional perpetrators believe that they're chosen. Now, why would you choose to be the future leaders around the globe with these advanced technological capabilities, the most advanced technological capabilities the world has ever seen, in particular, the last frontier, which are these neurotechs, and biological technological weapons. Why would you place them in the hands 
of people who can't even take words. I don't like what she said. Therefore, I'm going to retaliate. So you're going to put that same person with that mentality into a position of power. And they don't like what some other country says. So they're just going to bomb them and nuke them? Do you really think the power elite are going to allow people to destroy the whole planet so that they can't even live in it? If anything, because they know of the advances of these weaponized technologies or the capability to weaponize these technologies, this is more like the process of elimination. Here, we're going to give you the power. Are you going to use it justly, or are you going to destroy? Your perpetrator community does not represent the chosen who will lead, but the chosen who have already eliminated their possibilities of leading. You cannot place these technologies, whether they're directed energy, electronic warfare, to the biotechs in the hands of the perpetrator community because they have proven time and again that they will fire indiscriminately simply because they don't like what somebody says. Now, how can you lead nations? How can you lead a future if you don't even like what somebody says and you're going to bombard that person? You'll destroy this planet in no time flat. I hear tell that most of these texts that they give for these perpetrators, civilian perpetrators to field test, has a fail-safe on it, which means that it only goes to a certain degree because they already know that the vast majority of these civilians would have killed us a long time ago had they been give, given full access and full capabilities of these weaponized techs and biotechs. So that's kind of sad, isn't it? Oh, we don't like what she said, so we'll just kill them. You know how many dead people there'd be already? So when when they start looking at themselves as this covert group of elite chosen, they don't seem to understand that ultimately they're the first to be eliminated. You cannot place these technologies in the hands of this perpetrator community because they have proven time and again that when you give them a little bit of power, they lose control. And like I said, if there were not fail-safes in many of cases, most of those targets would be dead already because they'd have killed us a long time ago. So, now let me read. Um, It's called A Dystopian Visit to the Dark Future of Splinterland, Where Nationalism is King and Humanity is Truly Suffering, by John Pfeffer on Tom Dispatch. I like like Tom Dispatch. TomDispatch.com. November 10, 2015. It was reposted in Alternet. 
Let me start with the confession. I'm old-fashioned, and I have an old-fashioned profession. This is the tale, right? I'm a geopaleontologist. That means I dig around in archives to exhume the extinct, all the empires and federations and territorial unions that have passed into history. I practically created the profession of geopaleontology as a young scholar in 2020. Uh, We used to joke that we were the only historians with true 2020 hindsight. Now, my profession is becoming as extinct as its subject matter. Today, in 2050, fewer and fewer people can recall what it was like to live among those leviathons. Back in my youth, we imagined that lumbering dinosaurs like Russia and China and the European Union would endure regardless of the global convulsions taking place around them. Of course, at that time, our United States still functioned, as its name suggests, rather than as a motley collection of regional fragments that today fight over a shrinking resource base. Empires, like adolescents, think they'll live forever. It's geopolitics, as in biology, expiration dates are never visible. When death comes, it's always a shock. Consider the clash of the titans in World War I, Four enormous empires, the Ottoman, Austro-Hungarian, Russian, and German went into that conflict, imagining that victory would give them not just a new lease on life, but possibly even more territory to call their own. And all four came crashing down. That was, that war, the war was horrific enough, but the aftershock just kept piling up the bodies. The flu epidemic of 1918 and 1919 alone, which soldiers unwittingly transported from the trenches to their homelands, wiped out at least 50 million people worldwide. When dinosaurs collapsed, they crushed all manner of smaller creatures beneath them. No one today remembers the death throes of the last of the colonial empires in the mid-20th century with their staggering population transfers, fierce insurgencies, and endless proxy wars. Even if the infant states that emerged from those bloody afterbirths gained at least a measure of independence. My own specialty as a geopaleontologist has been the post-1989 period. The breakup of the Soviet Union heralded the last phase of decolonization. So too did the redrawings of boundaries that took place in parts of Asia and Africa from the 1990s into the 21st century, producing new states like East Timor, Eritrea, and South Sudan. The breakup of the Middle East in the aftermath of the United States invasion of Iraq and the Arab Spring followed a similar, if far more chaotic and bloody pattern. Though religious extremism, more than nationalist sentiment, tore apart the multi-ethnic countries of the region. Even in this inhospitable environment, the future will future still seemed to belong to the dinosaurs. Despite setbacks, the United States continued to loom over the rest of the planet as a as the sole superpower with this military and constant intervention mode. China was on the rise. Russia seemed bent on reconstituting the old Soviet Union. The need to compete on 
on an increasingly interconnected planet contributed to what seemed like a trend, pushing countries together to create economies of scale. The European Union deepened its integration and expanded its membership. Nations of very different backgrounds formed economic pacts like the Association of Southeast Asia Nations, or ASEAN, A-S-E-A-N, and the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, even countries without any shared borders contemplated such joint enterprises, like the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, and later Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, BRICS. As everyone, as everyone now knows, however, this spirit of integration would, in the end, go down to defeat as the bloodlands of the 20th century of the 20th century gave way to the splinterlands of the 21st. The sense of disintegration and disunity that settled over our world came at precisely the wrong moment. To combat a host of collective problems, we needed more unity, not less as we are all learning the hard way, a planet divided against itself will not long stand. The wrath of nations. Water boils most fiercely just before it disappears, and so it is evidently with human affairs. Just before all hell broke loose, In 1914, the world witnessed an unprecedented explosion of global trade at levels that would not be seen again until the 1980s. Just before the Nazis took over in 1932, Germans in the Weimar Republic were enjoying an extraordinary blossoming of cultural and political liberalism. Just before the Soviet Union imploded in 1991, Soviet scholars were pointing proudly to rising rates of intermarriage among the many nationalities of the Federation as a sign of ever greater social cohesion. And in 2015, just before the great unraveling, the world still seemed to be in the grip of what was then labeled globalization. The volume of world trade was at an all-time high Facebook had created a network of 1.5 billion active users. People on every continent were dancing to Drake, watching the World Cup final, and eating sushi. At the, end, at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, more people were on the move as migrants and refugees than at any time since the end of World War II. Borders seemed to be crumbling everywhere. Before 2015, almost everyone believed that time's arrow pointed in the direction of greater integration. Some hoped and others feared that the world was converging on ever larger conglomerations of nations. The internationalists campaigned for a United Nations that had some actual political power. The free trade imagined a fictitionless global market where identical superstores would sell the same products at all their global locations. The techno, uh, technotopians imagine a world united by Twitter and Instagram. In 2015, people were so busy crossing borders, real and conceptual, that they barely registered the backlash against globalization. Officially, more and more countries had committed themselves to diversity, multiculturalism, and composition 
a cosmopolitan ideals of liberty, solidarity, and equality. But everything began to change in 2015, a phenomenon I first chronicled in my landmark study, Splinterlands, Dispatch Books, 2025. The movements that came to the fore in 2015 championed a a historic turn inwards, the erection of walls, the enforcement of hegemony, it's a, I don't know why he says homogenous, homogenous means one, one race or one culture, but it's usually one race. And the trumping of exclusively national virtues. The leaders of these movements, Donald Trump in the United States, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, Russian President Vladimir Putin, French National Front Party leader Marine Le Pen, India, Indian Prime Minister Nahendra Modi, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, and Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, to name just a few, were not members of a single party. They did not consider themselves part of a single movement. Indeed, they were quite skeptical of anything that smacked on transnational cooperation. Personally, they were cosmopolitans, comfortable in a variety of cultural environments, but their politics were para, uh, para, uh, pariacal, like par, you know, parasites or um, what do you call them, piranhas. As a group, they her- heralded a change in world politics still working itself out 35 years later. Ironically enough, at the time, these figures were the ones labeled dinosaurs, quote-unquote, because of their focus on imaginary golden ages of the past. But when history passes, presses the rewind button as it has for the last 35 years, it can turn reactionaries into visionaries. Few serious thinkers during the, war, uh, during the waning days of the Cold War imagined that in the long run, nationalism would survive as anything more significant than flag and, and, and anthem. As the historian Eric Hobsbawm concluded in 1990, that force was almost spent, or as he put it, no longer a major vector of historical development. Commerce and the voracious desire for wealth were expected to rub away at national differences until all that remained would be a single global marketplace of supposedly rational actors. New technologies of travel and communication would unite strangers and dissolve the passions of particularism. The enormous bloodlettings that that nations visited on one another in the 19th and 20th centuries would surely convince all but the lunatic that appeals to motherland and fatherland had no place in a modern society. As it turned out, however, commerce and its relentless push for comparative advantage merely rebranded nationalism as another marketable commodity. Although travel and communications did indeed bring people together, they also increased the opportunity for misunderstandings and conflicts. As a result, nationalism did not go gently into the night. Quite the opposite. It literally remapped the world we now live in. The fracture lines. The fracturing of the so-called international community did not happen with one momentous crack. Rather, it proceeded much like the kelvings of Arctic ice masses under the pressure of global warming. 
leaving behind only a herd of modest ice blows. Rising geopolitical temperatures had a similar effect on the world's map. At first, it was difficult to understand how the war in Syria, the conflict in Ukraine, the simmering discontent in Xinjiang, the uprising in Mali, the crisis of the European Union, and the upsurge of anti-immigrant sentiment in both Europe and the United States were connected, but connected they were. The initial cracks in that now-dead global system appeared in the Middle East. As a geopaleontologist, I must admit that I wasn't particularly interested in those changes themselves, only in their impact on larger entities. Iraq and Syria, multi-ethnic countries forged in post-colonial fires of Arab nationalism split along ethnic and confessional lines. Under the pressure of a NATO air intervention led by the United States, Libya similarly fell apart when its autocratic leaders was killed and its arsenals were pillaged and sent to terror groups across a broad crescent of crisis. The fracturing then continued to spread to Yemen, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, and Jordan. People poured out of these disintegrating countries like creatures fleeing a forest fire. The vast flood of refugees by land and sea proved to be the tipping point for the European Union. Having expanded dramatically in the 2000s, the 28-member association hit a wall of Euroscepticism, fiscal austerity, and xenophobia as they reacted to the rising tide of refugees and anti-immigrant forces managed to end the Skagen system of open borders. Next to unravel was the European currency system as a highly indebted country on the periphery of the European reassess their fiscal sovereignty. The Eurosceptics took heart from these developments. In 2015, the anti-immigrant Democratic Party in Sweden leaped to the top of the opinion polls for the first time. Once the epitome of tolerance and social democracy, Sweden led the great turn in Scandinavia away from the European mainland. On the heels of local elections and those for the European Parliament, the far-right national front of Marine Le Pen became the most popular French party and, with its newfound power, began to pry apart the informal pact with Germany and had once been the, that once that once that had once been the engine for European integration. Eco-skeptical parties consolidated power in Poland, Portugal, Hungary, and Slovakia. Desperate to curry favor with its hardcore constituents, the British Conservative Party sponsored a referendum that guided Great Britain out of the EU. What had once been only scattered voices of dissatisfaction suddenly became a rush to the exits. The European Union survived for some years more until the acts of disintegration of 2028, but only as a shell. The unrest in the Middle East and the unraveling of the European Union had a profound impact on Russia. The last of that country's Soviet-era politicians had been attempting to reconstruct the old federation through new Eurasian arrangements. At the same time, they were trying to expand jurisdiction over Russian-speaking populations through border wars with Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova. But in their grab for more, they were left with less. Mother Russia could no longer corral its children, neither the Bariats 
and the Trans-Baltic region, nor the Sakha of Siberia. Neither the inhabitants of west, westernmost Kaling, uh, Kalingard, nor those of the maritime regions of Primorye in the Far East. Moscow's entrance into the Syrian conflict on the side of Damascus contributed to an upsurge in separatist sentiments in the Transcaucasian republics of Chechnya and Dagestan. In the Second Great uh, Perestroika of 2031, Russia divided along the lines we know so well today, separating its European and Asian halves and its individual wastelands in the north from its creeping deserts in the south. China found itself on a similar trajectory. A global economic slowdown frayed the unstated social contract, incremental improvements in prosperity in exchange for political quiescence that the Communist Party had developed in the wake of the Tiananmen Square protest in 1989. Beijing's crackdown on anything that smacked of terrorism only pushed the Uyghurs and Xinjiang into often uh, open revolt. The Tibetans, too, continued to advance their claims for greater autonomy. Inner Mongolia, with almost twice as many ethnic Mongolians and Mongolia itself, also pulled at the strings that held China together. Taiwan stopped talking about cross-strait reunification. Hong Kong reasserted its earlier status as an entrepot city. But these rebellions along the frontier paled in comparison to the middle uprising of the 2030s. In retrospect, it was obvious that the underemployed workers and farmers in China, China's heartland, who had only marginally benefited from the country's great capitalist leap forward of the 20th century would attack the political order. But who would have thought that in the middle could drop so quickly out of the middle kingdom? The United States as well, as we all know, had not fallen apart, but the American empire, which United States leaders took such pains to deny ever existed, had effectively collapsed. Once the United States government went into receivership over its mountainous debt and its infrastructure began to truly collapse, its vast overseas military footprint became unsupportable. As it withdrew, Washington deputized its allies, Germany, Japan, South Korea, Saudi Arabia, and Israel, to do the same work but they regularly worked at cross-purposes and in any case held their own national interests above those of Washington. Meanwhile, United States domestic politics remained so polarized and congealed that Congress and the executive branch could not establish a consensus on how to re-energize the economy or reconceive the national interest. Up went higher walks to keep out foreigners, higher walls to keep out foreigners and foreign products. With the exception of military affairs and immigration control, the government dwindled to the status of caretaker. Then there was the epidemic assault rifles, armed personal drones, and weapons, WBA, weaponized biological agents, all easily downloaded at home on 3D printers. The state lost its traditionally invaluable monopoly on violence and our society, though many refused to acknowledge the trend, drifted into a condition closely approximating psychosis. 
An increasingly embittered and armed white minority seemed determined to adopt a scorched-earth policy rather than leave anything of value to its mixed-race heirs. Today, of course, the country exists in name alone. For the only policies that matter are enacted on a regional basis. The centrifugal forces first set in motion in 2015 tore apart the great multi-ethnic nations in a terrifying version of the Yugoslavian Yugoslavianization that spread across the planet. Far-seeing pundits had predicted a wave of separatism in the 1990s. They were wrong only in terms of pace. The fissues were slower to appear, but appear they did. In South Asia, separatist movements ate away at both India and Pakistan. In Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Miramar fractured along ethnic lines. In Africa, the center could not hold, and things inevitably fell apart. In the Congo, the Central African Republic, Nigeria, and Chad, among other places. There was much talk in the early 21st century of failed states like Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Yemen, and Haiti. Looking back, it's now far clearer that in a certain sense, all states were failing. They had little chance against the governance eroding winds of globalization from above the ever greater upheaval of non-state actors from below. Perhaps under the best environmental conditions, these forces would have pushed empires, federations, and trade pacts to the edge, but no further. As it happened, however, despite conferences and manifestos and sort of binding agreements, the global thermostat thermometer continued to rise. The effects of climate change turned out to be the proverbial tipping point. Water shortages intensified conflicts throughout China, as did food shortages in Russia. The topics, the inlands, the coastlands, all were valuable, vulnerable to the rising waters. And virtually every country entered into a pitched battle over drinking water, clean air, indispensable minerals, and our arable lands. All of us have our own personal climate change disaster stories. For instance, I lost my home in Hurricane Donald, which destroyed so much of Washington, D.C. and its suburbs in 2029. I started all over in Nebraska, only to be forced to move again once the Ogala aquifers gave out in 2034, precipitating what we now call the Midwest mega drought. And like so many others, I lost a loved one only three years ago in that terrible month of superstorms, 747 which devastated much such a large swath of the planet what no one anticipated was the impact climate change would have on nationalism but how else would people divvy up increasingly precious natural resources national sentiment proved to be the go-to principle for determining what our people deserved and those others did not as a result, instead of becoming an atavistic remnant of another age, nationalism had proved to be this century's most potent ideology. On an increasingly desperate planet, we face not the benevolence or tyranny of one world, but the multiple confusions of many worlds. All that was solid. 
It was not only the multi-ethnic national state that proved untenable in our century. Everything seemed to be fracturing. The Middle East shattered the promise of stable jobs and income, the iron rice bowl in the east, and the ironclad tension in the west disappeared into a maelstrom of inequality in which the super-rich 1% effectively seeded from society while the poorest of the poor had nowhere to turn. Back in 2015, pundits loved to promote new trends like the sharing economy of millions of employees turned entrepreneurs or the long tail of the splintering consumer market. But the bottom line was grimly straightforward. The forces that could have acted to contravene in the uh, various competition of the market gradually disappeared. Gone was the guiding hand of the government. Gone was the restraining pressure of morality. Technology certainly played a role in the transformation. First, when computers and cell phones untethered individuals from fixed workplaces, and, and then when biochips turned each individual into his own workstation. The application of market principles to ever facet of existence whittled away the public sphere in favor of the private one. Such dynamics at the social level also contributed to the great fracturing that took place in the international sphere. Yes, I can anticipate your criticism. Perhaps it's true that in 2050, we are at a nadir of cooperation and some new form of centralization and globalization lies ahead. Clearly, the jihad to operate that many caliphate around the world dream of uniting the faithful under a single banner. There are diplomats even today who hope that all 300 plus members of the United Nations to agree to the sort of institutional reform that could provide the world with some semblance of global governance. And maybe a brilliant programmer is even now creating a new killer app that will put every single person on the same page literally. As a geopaleontologist, I am reluctant to speculate. I focus on the past, on what has actually happened. Anyone can make predictions, but none of these scenarios of future integration seem at all plausible to me. That's the way the cookie crumbles. We used to say when I was a kid, and a cookie can only crumble in one direction. Still, I would be remiss if I didn't point out something that many have noted over the years. We have been fragmenting at precisely the time when we should be coming together. For the problems that face the planet cannot be solved by millions of individuals or masses of statelets acting alone. And yet, how can we expect with desperate millions on the move, the rise of pandemics, and the deepening of economic inequality globally that people can unite against common existential threats. Only today can we all see clearly, as I wrote so many years ago, that the rise of the splinterlands has been humanity's true tragedy. The inability of cultures to compromise within single states, it seems anticipated our current moment when multiplying nations, states, cannot compromise on a single planet to address our global scourge. The glue that once held us together, namely solidarity across religion, ethnicity, and class, has lost its binding force. At the beginning of the great unraveling in 2015, I was still a young man like everyone else, 
I didn't see this coming. We all lived in a common home. I thought some rooms were in terrible despair. Those living in the attic were often exposed to the elements. The house as a whole needed better insulation, more efficient appliances, solar panels on the roof, and we had indeed fallen behind on the mortgage payments. But like so many of my peers, I seldom doubted that we could scrape together the funds and that we that, and the will to make the necessary repairs by asking the richest residents of the house to pay their fair share. Thirty-five years and endless catastrophes later, on, the, on a poorer, bleaker, less hospitable planet, it's clear that we just weren't paying sufficient attention. Had we been listening, we would have heard the termites there in the basement of our common home. They were eating the very foundation out of, out from under us. Suddenly, before we knew quite what was happening, all that was solid had melted into air. So think about it. And by the way, the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership that they're trying to fast-track, that, that's fast-tracked through Congress is really a disaster in the making. It would it provide, you should look it up and you should do some research, and I covered a show on it. And it has to do with uh, um, multinational. Uh, the European has one and Asian, now this Asian one, the Trans-Pacific is Asian. And it basically allows for the corporations to take over on a global basis. They will have a tribunal of three corporate lawyers that will, you know, trade, you know, trade off, and they will decide if a corporation is losing funds or they say that they want to keep a patent on a medicine longer, etc. And if they decide that, then it has the power to usurp our domestic laws. Think about that: our domestic laws. So if they say that arsenic is is not because this corporation decides that arsenic is no longer dangerous, even though all of us know it is. Not only could they usurp the domestic laws that say you're forbidden to use it, I'm just using it as an example, but you have to pay the lawyers, the, the, the public has to pay the lawyers' fees. See, they don't tell you about these type of things that are going on with this, uh, these trans-Pacific partnerships and the European uh, you know, uh, trade agreements. These are all trade agreements. Go talk to North America about the NAFTA and what a disaster that was for Mexico. Even Clinton admits it was a disaster. Do your homework, people, because it's all there at your fingertips on your technological means. That's how you make an informed decision, not by following the group leader, but taking the time to do the research. Then you can truly make an informed decision. Have a nice day. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.